Hello, everybody. This is your host, Vincent Horn, tuning in today for a very special conversation and one I've been very excited about um, since I spoke last week uh, in our prep call with today's guest, Spring Washam. Spring, thank you again for taking the time to chat with the geeks. Appreciate that. <laughs> I'm happy to be here. Do you do you consider yourself a geek? You know, I think as I get older, yeah, more and more. I definitely feel that, you know, I guess it depends on what the real definition is. But <laughs> I, 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 I think it's an inner inner one, though. I can, mm. I can fit that. I definitely can. Yeah, it's funny. If, well, it's a few years into doing this project. Someone asked us, you know, what is a Buddhist geek? And I, I thought about it. And it was originally the, you know, geek was tied to love of technology. But then obviously there's another meaning, which is like being really passionate about something and geeking out on it. And you're certainly a geek in that respect. Uh, I, I know that just from talking to you once. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of what I was thinking. Yeah, I, I fit it for sure. Yeah. So um, let me share a little bit uh, about your background for those uh, who may not have run into you before in the Dharma world. Um, Spring is a meditation teacher. Um, she's trained at the Spirit Rock Meditation Center and the Insight Meditation Tradition. Uh, you released your, I think it was your first book, um, A Fierce Heart, recently, Finding Strength, Courage, and Wisdom in Any Moment. Was that yep. your first? That was my first book. Mm-hmm. Congratulations. Thank um, you. Yeah. And you're also the, one of the founders and core teachers at the East Bay Meditation Center in Oakland, um, which is a really important center in terms of uh, a place for people of color to come together and practice. Um, one of the few that I'm aware of um, that's doing that. So um, very good work you're doing. And today, I, I think this is part of the background that we may spend the most time exploring. You're also... Uh, have, have founded a project called Lotus Vine Journeys. Um, it's an organization that blends indigenous healing practices with Buddhist wisdom. And um, part of why I was really excited to be speaking with you is that I discovered that um, you have been leading for a number of years now retreats in which um, there's a combination of both Peruvian shamanic medicine work and Buddhist meditative contemplative practice going on. And um, it's one of the few examples that I'm aware of uh, where someone, uh, certainly someone who uh, is a well-known teacher um, is doing this. And so I thought it'd be really cool to, to, to explore that as part of this meditating on psychedelic series that we've been doing. Yeah, very cool. Okay, so... Maybe we should start with um, the stories. <laughs> I'm really, really curious to hear a bit more about how you got into this because I understand just from uh, reading a little bit in, in our brief conversation last week that um, it, it sounded like you really ran into some limitations in the Dharma practice that you were doing in terms of its, you know, its ability to support you or or. Uh, enable you to to work on some deep uh, healing stuff that was that was there, and I really can relate to that as I've had a similar experience. Um, and so I was hoping you could start by sharing the story of how you came into the medicine work and what was it about the Dharma practice that wasn't sort of supporting you or 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 giving you the tools maybe that you needed uh, in order to do that work. Yeah, that's such a great question. And I think 
a question that many meditation practitioners, probably even in other traditions, can um, benefit from in some way. I think there's a similar experience even um, across traditions. So I was on a, when it first happened where I felt like I needed an intervention, you know, cause I think that's the question. It's like, why can't you meditate through it? You're, you're a Buddhist. Mm. <laughs> just, be, <laughs> just be mindful, right? That's kind of, you know, you're falling apart and everyone just says, pay attention, just notice it. And I was on a three month meditation retreat at actually Insight Meditation Society. And this was, I was thinking about the date. This was maybe almost 10 years ago, close to 10 years ago. I was on this uh, very intensive, as many people know, um, how silent Vipassana meditation retreats can be. And I was doing a concentration practice, uh, loving kindness, actually, meta practice. And I was being guided um, with two great teachers there, well-known. And I fell apart about two months into it. I think what I, I've come to realize now is that these practices bring up trauma. Mm. And I didn't really understand. And I think we're all learning as a community now how to work with trauma. That's a really big topic and few, you know, teacher trainings that have come after that and conversations and and as people get more uh, seek more perspectives and understanding on how to work with students with trauma and their own trauma, you know, as, mm. as things have uh, been arising, you know, in the community and within ourselves. So I just really fell apart. I got really sick. I felt all these intense emotions, just unbelievable despair which was kind of a, a desperation and I was losing weight and I, I got vertigo and I'd walk down the hallway. I would, if the floor felt like the ocean, there was this ringing in my ears. I just had never experienced anything like this. And at first they thought I had an ear infection or, you know, they were, I was like, no, this isn't, no, this isn't, this is beyond that. This is not physical. That's manifesting as a physical thing. But I just remember telling them something is wrong. Something, you know, is wrong here. I can't be present with it. Hmm. And so what I realized was that uh, while I was there, I left the retreat a couple weeks early because I felt that I needed help. And I saw right away that even though those teachers were skilled, that I was I was on a different map. You know, I wasn't on the regular path anymore. I had sometimes I somehow went off. And it it felt that sitting in silence was actually magnifying the the painful experiences it was making it worse um mm. and it wasn't that the dharma was wrong in that moment it was that the the technique wasn't meeting what i needed that that form of the silence hour after hour alone uh i needed some type of other energy and so it kept coming to me during that time i need a shaman shamanism and i didn't understand that voice until I got home. And when I got home, I reached out to a dear friend who was uh, a well-known psychologist who had her own practice and someone who I highly respected. And she said, you know, I want to tell you, there's a few of us 
that are working with a plant called ayahuasca. And we have found tremendous healing. And now they weren't introducing others to it. It was a small group of psychologists who were using it themselves. And Mm -hmm. she said, come try this. I can see you're going through so many difficulties. I think this can be helpful. She also had a very uh, extensive background in trauma herself, just her own childhood. And she said, I'm getting a lot of help. And I just please come and I'll, I'll be there. And so I went and that was kind of my first introduction. And that one night, it was in a very safe place up in the Santa Cruz mountains here in Northern California. And that night I understood more in that eight hour ceremony than I understood in the whole retreat, the two and a half months that I'd been meditating. That Mm. one night led me to understand what was happening and how I could work with it with what was happening. So it was very profound. So that was kind of the door. And that led me to going on my first trip to Peru a few months later. Oh, wow. So you, so you kind of went straight from that experience right, right into the, to the heart of the, uh, the tradition. Yeah, it was within like a few months. I did it a couple more times with them, the group. Mm. And then I realized right away that understanding it from the source was very yeah. important to me. So understanding it from within those lineages in Peru, um, it just had a very big draw. I was just very interested, you know? Yeah. I mean, it makes sense to me that, you know, doing an eight hour ceremony and getting, you know, as much or more it sounded like than what you're able to kind of work through and get on a three, <laughs> three month retreat. It seems like a huge, I know <laughs> it's huge. I can see why you would be down in Peru. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, is something you said was, uh, struck me the, the experience of being in silence and how that can actually just be the wrong format for working with certain things, especially, um, interpersonal, uh, trauma. I don't know that there's any other kind, I suppose, <laughs> but, um, I, I was remembering as you describing that being on retreat, um, at spirit rock and, um, experiencing something really similar. And I didn't, I didn't know what I was, um, didn't know what was going on, but fortunately was, uh, was working with Trudy Goodman, who's, you know, got a, a deep background in trauma work and psychotherapy. And she, she was able to kind of recognize that I was caught in some sort of traumatic pattern and that the silence and the feeling of isolation and of like lack of human contact was somehow amplifying that. And it it was, you know, leading in a place that was actually um, not helpful at all. Did you find something like that was happening in the silence? Oh yeah. It was so intense because it it was almost Mm -hmm. like the more I would meditate, the more that isolation that yes. feeling of uh, alone in the universe, you know, thrown out of the nest. It, it was so strong and it was just getting worse. So yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Now I, I know we, we do have different um, experiences of this in certain ways. Cause um, you know, my background was working with teachers who were, I'll call them uh, gung ho. <laughs> this is a, a nice way of putting it. They're really gung ho about, <laughs> Uh, achieving enlightenment. And I was on the, you know, sort of the gung ho path. Um, and that, that has, you know, that brings up a lot of 
challenges and issues and spiritual bypassing being chief among them. But I, I found too, after like 10 years or so of really dedicated practice that, you know, I was, you know, obviously learned a lot from, from doing the practice and it changed me in a fundamental way, but there, you know, it was like what I was left with was this empty, uh, this empty, still traumatized little boy, <laughs> certain mm-hmm. ways, still mm-hmm. like needing to grow up and heal. And, uh, and, and it was funny. I, I found, you know, what I discovered in meditation was, you know, valuable beyond compare. And yet it didn't really, didn't really help me with that. In fact, it, it sort of insulated me from, from having to deal with some of those things and, and work with them. Yeah, I think that that can be one of the things that's a pitfall for us is that suddenly the meditation exactly. And I have met so many people that talk about this plateau that happens at some point where, you know, initially where you meet the Dharma and meditation, you know, you geek out on it, right? You're, you're like having a love affair. This is it. This is my life. And then it is. But then, you know, like all relationships, when the honeymoon phase is gone, then all the real work is there. And there's a way for some of us that we can't get at that work through that form of sitting still in silence, right? That there's yes. some kind of way we need to engage with the energy differently, with our suffering in a different way. And I think that is becoming more and more apparent in meditation communities now. Whereas before, you know, they would just, you would just feel bad about yourself or completely fall apart, right? On your own later, you leave the retreat and you, you know, you have the dark night for years or, or <laughs> in an isolated where you just feel bad about yourself. I've met so many people on different sides of the spectrum, you know, mm-hmm. where you beat yourself up. Why can't I just be mindful? You know, and and yes. it's trauma. So different yes. approaches, I think, as skillful means are appearing now. So speaking of what, you know, what was it in doing that first ceremony and then continuing to go deeper with that particular work? Like, what was it about the work? Um, what was it like working with that? How How did it support you? Well, what it helped me do, which I think is really important when we talk about meditating with psychedelics, I mean, we we look at what what are we doing? What are we, where are we trying to go with this, right? What are we trying to access? And for me, it was trying to understand my suffering because when I fell apart on that long retreat, I did not know what was going on. And the not knowing was what created more anxiety. You know, Mm. nobody could give me an answer. I don't know what's going on. Why am I feeling like this? Why is my mind going crazy? Why do I feel like I have no refuge? I'm crying. I'm upset. I'm shaking. I'm losing weight. No one had an answer. And I think what I learned in that first ceremony, oh, this is why I started to see the cause and effect and understand that this was coming from past trauma. And, and then I could work on that level with using ayahuasca. I could go to the level where the energy was in my body and my heart, and I could start to resolve it energetically by being present in that state, in that field. It was like 
but it took me right into that place where I needed to go. Mm. Would you, would you frame it as healing work? Yeah, I think, you know, that's definitely where the starting point for me uh, really began was all the, the trauma that was unresolved that started to come up on this uh, retreat that I was on. And when I, I remember looking at the teachers who were helping me and I knew that they, they didn't know how. And, and not everyone kept saying, just be present. And as I mentioned earlier, I, I just couldn't do it. And so something else was really needed and the suffering was real. So that's always was my motivation for working with any plant was that how can this help me let go or understand what's happening? Help me to understand the suffering I'm experiencing. Yeah. Okay. This, you know, this brings up an interesting question because I, I have, I've had and worked with some people who try to make a real strong and firm distinction between kind of uh, insight on the one hand and personal healing on the other. And w one teacher I worked with, he said, you know, there's a difference between working with the content of your experience and then seeing the, the process uh, and noticing, you know, how the process is like. That said, you know, and I found that was a useful distinction, especially early on uh, in my practice. But that said, I, I have a hard time differentiating now between what is healing and what is insight because they really feel so intimately connected. Do you have any thoughts on the relationship between kind of working on the self and then seeing through the self and the relationship between those two, especially, you know, in the context of the Buddhist practice and the you know, the, the Peruvian shamanic practices you've done? Yeah, that's such a great question. I love that one. Cause again, it's like, you know, the two truths, right? This conventional reality and this ultimate reality. And I think for a lot of ways, that's what makes me good at shamanism and all my years of traveling in Peru and working, even spending a year there as an apprentice and, um, working in very intense moments in shamanic states and rather it's a group doing ayahuasca or I'm facilitating and stuff is happening internally and externally because I can see it as empty. It makes me kind of fearless. You know, mm. I'm able to stay really steady because I do have that view like, okay, this is all consciousness. You know, it, it's appearing real, but somehow I know it's not fully real. Um, or it's not real in the way that my mind would like to think it is. You know, it's not mm. permanent. And so for me, insight and healing are one and the same. Because when I have a genuine insight into something about the story or about what's happening or I'm letting go, uh, for me, it all fits into um, my ex direct experience, meaning so if I'm letting go of something that has happened or I'm healing trauma, to me, that's understanding impermanence, letting go, no self. I'm, for me, they're connected, so I don't even really dif differentiate them. However, I do recognize that um, some people do. And so it's important that when we're working, what makes the power of the Buddhist path what makes the, the, so the, the conjunction of them two is holding that ultimate reality is that everything that we're going from and to actually see the story through that lens. 
which is what I really like to guide people in when they're on the retreats with me to hold that empty nature, to hold that, yes, this is happening, but this isn't, there's no really me behind it. It's just this, it's just letting go of itself. So I find that that position of awareness and and observation really helps people to go deeper and react with less fear over what they're seeing, you know, what the mind is seeing. So I love putting these two together and, and seeing insight into all everything that happens in a shamanic uh, ceremony uh, as true insight practice. Mm. No, I, I didn't hear you say exactly this, but I, w- I want to run this by you and see if, if, if how you, how you'd respond to this. So one way I would put it now is sort of this empty experience takes form or shape as this personal story and self. And because of that, it, the story and the self are really, they're important to, to work with at that level. Um, and the heal, and healing is real at that level. Mm-hmm. Um, I love what you're saying about that. The, the ultimate you know, part of the, what makes healing possible is that, um, that it's things are empty. Otherwise, how could we, how could we heal and let go? Right. Yes. Okay, I've got I've got something else I want to bring up here that um and I, and I hadn't planned on this, so uh, hope hopefully this won't be uh, <laughs> hopefully this will be a good curveball. <laughs> so that. Throw it, yes, I'm ready. <laughs> so part of what hearing you talk about your story and your experience, especially with the healing work, um, reminds me of is uh, a, a journey that I. I did myself a couple of years ago. Um, in this case, I was working with psilocybin. I was working with friends in an intentional, um, conscious way in much similar ways you describe. And I had just come from visiting with my grandparents and my grandfather is, um, just turned 85 recently. He's, um, uh, Palestinian. He was born in Palestine and immigrated, uh, when he was 15. In 1948, which is, of course, the year that the British um, helping the Jewish who are relocating from World War II and this tremendously crazy experience, uh, unfortunately, you know, pushed he and, and his family and really their entire village and really the entire, almost the entire country out of their uh, homes. And I was talking to him and I was really wanting to explore this with him because I, I, he hadn't talked much about it, but I knew it was a big deal. Mm-hmm. And we had this conversation and then I, from there I go straight to the ceremony. <laughs> As you can imagine. Yes. Well, of course, what comes up during the ceremony and um, all of this incredible heartache and pain and sorrow that uh, just immediately was obvious. This is not mine, but it is coming through me. And I just felt this uh, compulsion to bow down with my head to the ground, almost in the the Muslim prayer position. Mm. And I had this experience of um, really what felt like and looked like visually what I, you know, what I've seen in pictures of like these beautiful Quran, you know, Quranic, you know, buildings, these mosques with this amazing psychedelic visual art um, had this you know, experience of this greater presence and just giving all of that over to it and surrendering to it. 
and this is not my background. You know, this is not part of my upbringing. Uh, my grandfather, when he left Palestine, also left Islam behind, you know, as an attempt to adapt. And so it was really kind of shocking, but it was also extraordinarily healing. Um, I'm curious, you haven't talked about the nature of the suffering that you're experiencing, but, you know, I saw from that journey that so much of the suffering is stuff we inherit and it's related to all kinds of things, um, race, culture, uh, World War II, um, movements of people, um, you know, people traumatized and then, you know, unfortunately not having a way to deal with that trauma and then it gets perpetuated. You know, all of these things um, are part of what, you know, it, it, this personal trauma takes form as. I, I wonder if you could respond to that or if there's anything that that brings up uh, or relates to your experience. Yeah, well, what a beautiful story, you know, and I think that you really, you really describe something very, very common, you know, even the desire that you had to want to talk to your grandfather, like something's arising in us, right? So we go to the source, like, wow, suddenly I'm starting to think about this and I want to talk to you. And then you end up going into your ceremony and it's all there. It was kind of like that. it was right for you to explore that or to feel it or to understand it or to let that go in some way. Um, and I think a big part of what we are unpacking collectively is our ancestral suffering, our community suffering. It's almost like, you know, using that word karma, you know, our collective karma. And that could be as a woman, I have a, a certain suffering that comes with that. As an African-American, I have a, a certain thread of an experience that that comes from Palestinians or Jewish communities or, um, you know, growing up in the South, you have a kind of Southern karma or Southern kind of thing to sort through. And um, I think that that's what we're doing kind of layer by layer is exploring that. I know one of the things that not only meditation brings up, as we know, or plant medicine, is that, you know, even on meditation retreats, people begin to feel this suffering. I was once teaching a retreat, um, and all these women, suddenly all the suffering of the women started to come into the field, right? It was almost like, okay, the patriarchy within the, even the retreat. And it was, it became very interesting navigating these energies. It was, I was teaching a six week course and this group of women, they were just, all of this was, it was arising within them. We can even see that in the wider culture where uh, a demographic will start to, that the, the suffering they carry will start to kind of arise. So internally, collectively, I think, I've experienced many moments of those, my ancestors, right? And you felt the realness of that, the Islamic prayers and and the beauty, you know, like the Sufism and the, the mystery and the, you know, yes, our lineages are alive. You know, your great, great grandparents are alive in you, you know, so we, we do heal that stuff. There's something that is unresolved. It will arise in meditation retreat and then, even more with the working with the plants. So that's beautiful. It, it feels like in a way you just, uh, the question got bigger, you know, it's not just mm -hmm. the personal healing that this is about. It's also 
the collective healing. Yes, yes, because we are that. We are the 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 emptiness and the form. We are both. And so how to how to see all of this as connected to us is is really important. You know, like how is the what happens to black men in urban cities to under start to see how that is affecting the whole and, you know, myself, others, or what happens in, you know, Burma or what happens in Palestine. It's all, you know, it's, it's all connected in some way. Thank you. You brought up something too the last time we spoke um, that I wanted to bring back up because you've talked about how, you know, the, the map uh, sometimes doesn't include certain kinds of experiences. And of course, what map includes everything? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the real one. <laughs> the one we're living. Yeah. <laughs> that we can't see. <laughs> exactly. Um, and you, you mentioned that you thought some of this is uh, also could be understood generationally um, in terms of, you know, there, there being a different uh, orientation generationally and, and in terms of the work that you're doing and the, the conversation that's kind of happening now about, um, about the interface of psychedelic medicines and, you know, contemplative practice um, that conversation, you know, wasn't happening in the same way in the last generation. Uh, of course, you know, it was a totally different time, but, you know, do you see, do you see, for instance, our willingness to have this conversation being also part of our generational conditioning and our kind of the, the age that we grew up in? Yeah, I do. And I, when I think of what this conversation um, really entails is where, you know, we're talking about here. I mean, for me specifically, you know, we're, you, your work with psilocybin, mine with ayahuasca, other, you know, people may work with other substances, but when I think of the earth, those medicines of the earth rising in our consciousness, you know, ayahuasca's everywhere, psilocybin research, all of this is coming out, peyote in the Native American church, San Pedro in the mountains. I feel like in some way our generation has to grapple with the condition of the earth right now. This mm. is our burden to bear. And I feel that on many levels, these these medicines are rising up kind of helping it's kind of for me these medicine and plants are like Gaia's last stance here like either you're gonna see you're connected to me <laughs> and everything or you kill yourself the end of this chapter doesn't mean we won't go somewhere else but you know there there is something going on and I feel like the openness of the future generations, millennials or Gen X's or Generation Z, I hear now, I have so much hope in this generation. I feel like they will shift things with their wisdom around justice and humanity. And, you know, as we see now, this generation is, you know, fighting the NRA, you know, 15 year olds standing up to where others aren't. So there is something that is um, moving, but I think that maybe all generations have that, right? They all, they all push the ball forward, you know, the 60s was one. But here we are thinking about plants. And for me, Vince, you know, I'm so passionate about this conversation 
because I see so much good that can come out if people are open to it. If people, you know, have an open mind and when I talk about this stuff at, you know, where I'm in conversations at Spirit Rock Meditation Center or people approach me and, you know, with fear of the controversy of it or the, the, is this safe or, and I tell many people that we are at the, the 11th hour here. And so for me, I'm doing this because we're sort of in an emergency situation and we need to move things quicker. We can't, there's no time to lose right now. And so maybe if this was a hundred years ago, I would have no interest in meditating with, with plants or, um, you know, any psychedelic because I would just sit and follow, you know, maybe a more structured traditional path. Um, maybe just Buddhism and it's, you know, purest, purest essence. But right now we need help. And I think that there's a real, there's a great good that could happen um, through this path, through the merging, because it will accelerate uh, our understanding of who we are. I love what I love what you're saying about the earth. Um, this is something I, I can honestly say I have probably almost no experience with up until you know the last several years. <laughs> Just kind of like, mm-hmm. what? There's an earth beneath me, right? Um, and there's a body that's <laughs> underneath this head. Um, but in the last several years, I've really noticed both in doing the psychedelic work and also in being forced to to work with the body and work in the body um, because my practice just couldn't go anywhere else. Um, I've noticed that the body and, and being inside the body and the somatic awareness seems to be the linkage to the earth. And... Uh, you mentioned something in our last conversation that when you teach in, say, the Spirit Rock community, which is um, you know culturally much different than East Bay Meditation Center, that that the work that you tend to focus on is embodiment, uh, or that 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 maybe that's the emphasis. Whereas in the East Bay, that that's not so much of the focus. I found that really interesting, and it, it connects with my own experience. And also, you know, just wondering if if there's anything else that you you know want to share about that or say about that? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think of the body too, as being the body of the earth because it's so elemental, you know, and a friend of mine and I were talking about that too, about teaching, working with ayahuasca and teaching the four foundations of mindfulness. Like how do we, how do we have a direct experience of, you know, the body and, and how does that connect? And I really see it through the elements of the earth and the bones and the water and the, the fire and the, you know, air element. And, um, I think it's easier for people who live closer to the earth to, to see, to feel that more embodied place. And, you know, it's not to make a big generalization, but, you know, when I am at Spirit Rock or when I'm in communities that are not communities of color, it's it's hard to make that connection or to help people understand the importance of embodiment. It's it's a overriding um, conditioning is that mental is better, the mind is superior, the mind is um, the highest place to abide in, right? Not the yes. body. The body is like messy. The body is out of control. The body is Oh, it's unreliable, but it couldn't be more opposite, 
right? I mean, Mm -hmm. the first foundation in Buddhism is embodiment, right? Mm -hmm. It is like this. And so I want to always emphasize this in communities now because there's a way we kind of just skip that a little bit. So, but how do you do it? How do you live in your body when you're so conditioned to be, you know, dominated by your mind? People aren't intentionally trying to, you know, exclude their body, but the the conditioning is very strong. I feel that when I work in groups, I'm in, you know, sort of the upper echelon of Buddhism, you know, upper middle way communities, we'll say, it's like, wow, it's hard for me. I feel that disconnect and it's, it's like pushing a boulder up a hill when I'm teaching to try to get that understanding uh, to be deep in the body and not the mind so much to feel the teachings um, in a different way. Um, I'm so appreciative to, to, to Reggie Ray and the Dharma ocean community. Yes. Because that that's everything I've learned. I feel like about the body almost, I, I learned some things in the Vipassana community, but it was, it, it was there and I could see that it was there. As you say, it's the first foundation, but I always found that being aware of the body, you know, taking it as an object, um, didn't, it didn't get me into it. Mm. Um, you know, I, I became more aware of it, but I wasn't, you know, aware in it. <laughs> so that, you know, just, just a shout out to, to that community. Cause I think they're really, you know, one of many that are pushing the way, you know, forward. But for me, that connecting to the kind of the the Tibetan Buddhist teachings on that, um, you know, and Reggie's orientation has been helpful. And I, I've been thinking too, in, in, in response to something you're saying there, you know, being, you know, the mind is the highest thing. I, I've been thinking a lot recently that that's probably why mindfulness has been so popular in a way. It's, <laughs> it's, it's like a non-threatening way in to this thing. And it may be a very skillful way in, but it's still, yeah, like mindfulness is very much a cognitive, it's, it's got a cognitive component to it. Um, and it is, you know, um, possible to be mindful and not embodied, I found, or, or perhaps, you know, one, one, one understanding of mindfulness, <laughs> maybe right. it's not the, the deepest understanding. Yeah. And it goes like mindfulness or the mind, it, it is the most important thing. And the more you you recognize or become more mindful in some way, you recognize how it isn't the most important thing. So it's a paradox kind of right there. Like, yes, it all is mind and yet. <laughs> so it's kind of holding those two things. And, and I really agree with you. Taking the body as an object is a very interesting way to, to practice. And again, I always wonder... Yeah, how it is that I did many years of walking meditation, breath meditation, and was very disembodied. So just by doing that, it doesn't doesn't always land you there. So there, there's a there's a deeper process to that for sure. Have you, have you found that the way that you practice those techniques has changed since doing um, the more shamanic and kind of earth based practices? Have have has your how has it, how ha, I'm curious about how these two have interfaced for you and how they've changed each other. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, in the beginning I was really, uh, because trauma creates a disembodiment, Yes. right? It create you just leave and you don't even know it. You don't, I didn't know I was doing walking meditation and I was faking it. I thought I was really feeling my feet, you know, but it was kind of, 
imitation in a way, you know, it wasn't kind of going to the deeper parts. But I think for me, I didn't start to really understand anything truly about my body till many years into working with ayahuasca Mm. and, and meditating with ayahuasca. And it was through that process of coming into my body in those experiences so directly and also letting go of those heavy, darker, dense energies, you know, those, the wounded places that manifest in the body as blocks. And, um, you know, that's, we can't go any farther, right? We hit a crossroads. And so when I was able to move some of those bigger pieces, the bigger ancestral pieces, the bigger, um, you know, from previous abuse and all these different things, I was able to come into my body in a different way and understand it from the inside. So I was not able to reach that place um, of understanding really understanding the first foundation of mindfulness. And I don't even deposit that I know it now. I know I'm like a baby understanding of what it is, but I definitely know more now than when, you know, had I not been working with ayahuasca, I don't think I would have understood this mind body process as clearly in this, in this way that I, I now live in my body and I'm understanding how to live in it on deeper and deeper levels. Mm. That's beautiful. So uh, I, I think one question that maybe comes up, uh, it certainly comes up for me is, you know, as, as exploring this psychedelic Buddhist e, <laughs> you know, thing that we're exploring is, you know, what does it actually look like and feel like in the nuts and bolts level? What what does it what does it look like when you you're doing your retreats, your lotus and vine retreats? Oh, we haven't even talked about lotus and vine, yeah. um, that imagery. Um, I'm curious what it looks like on those retreats and how those two traditions get inter- interwoven. Um, and maybe, maybe you could start by talking about that imagery, the Lotus and the vine. That, yeah. That well, for. that was, you know, I, when I, I was living in Peru for a year, I decided to study as sort of an apprentice and I, I stayed in the jungle and I, I was studying and when I left that year and it was really hard. It was like a year of renunciation and, out in the middle of the wild and kind of a classic uh, apprentice, you know, stories. I'll say more about that at another time. But when I got back to the States and California, I decided to, I wanted to help Buddhist communities um, grow faster. That was really it. I was like, okay, we need to, (laughs) because I saw this beautiful integrity and we had this fantastic map of consciousness that you know all these masters have left behind and i believe i know without a doubt that those maps for me are are they're it right i don't question that um but what i didn't know is how to really live that and so lotus vine became this idea lotus being the buddha's you know awakening the lotus flower awakening consciousness the representing and then the vine was ayahuasca was a vine that grows in the heart of the amazon you know this the sort of vine of the soul and then i decided to make a lotus vine journeys because it is the journey isn't it into the heart and the mind going to peru and the journey into one's own consciousness so Lotus Vine Journeys came out of that, um, me thinking about what to call it, how to frame it, 
and then how to lead it. So your question there, you know, we offer these two week retreats and, and they're definitely for experienced, I think, meditators, because we do eight ceremonies and we do ayahuasca ceremonies are traditionally held at night. So, uh, you know, they happen in the evening, eight o'clock till about maybe two o'clock in the morning. And we, in the day we weave, uh, integration circles with, uh, mindfulness practices. We have yoga and we do teachings every day before the, before the ceremony. So as you know, that's a very influential time right before that few hours before what you, what seed you plant right there, Vincent is the most powerful one. So you, you know, you had the conversation with your grandfather. Wow. It opened up that whole thing. So there we really weave in a lot of wisdom, right? How to be, how to be present, how to, how to hold the heart, how to cultivate the compassion for ourselves, how to open to uh, willing to let go, how to feel all of these different teachings we weave through the retreat. And it just becomes a really powerful experience for our guest. Um, and so that's a little bit about Lotus Vine Journeys as far as um, how we started it. And it's evolving all the time you know, what we teach, who comes on the retreat, their experiences, right? And it just keeps, you know, we're weaving something together. Um, you know, what is emphasized on each retreat is made up by the individuals who come. So maybe some has the flavor of emptiness, some has more of the flavor of, um, you know, real letting go, right? Or some has some of the flavor of just, you know, the ego and the ego becomes wow, I'm the sense of self and everyone's sort of, you know, chewing on that and how to understand it or, or, you know, some aspect of interconnectedness, you know, how is it that I'm one with everything and how do we hold that? Um, so each, each retreat has its own depth. So I love them. They're the most powerful learning I've ever had in my whole life. I, I think I set up something in motion that was going to accelerate myself by uh, mm. leading it and being there moment to moment. Hmm. That's really cool. I, I, I know I looked at the schedule and I saw you sort of, there's some alternating that goes on where some evenings there's ceremonies and then some evenings is kind of like reminded me of, you know, what it's like in the evening at a, you know, at IMS or Spirit Rock, there's kind of the Dharma talk or yeah. one of my teachers calls it the evening entertainment, <laughs> which is, you know, kind of a, a little bit of a, a, a joke, but um, <laughs> I, 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 I liked that there's also, I like the thought of there being some space because <laughs> yes. as you say, um, you know, being really in it, how do you, okay, here's a question for you. How do you find integration works because one of the themes um I, you know one of the themes of this series has ended up being both medicine work and and psychedelic and, and other psychedelic work and intensive retreat practice both of them sort of seem to have this function of really producing some profound openings and insights and increasing concentration power and all these things that, you know, kind of put us often in another, you know, in another understand into another understanding of reality. That's, that's quite different than, than maybe how we normally walk around. How do you think about and work with the process of integration? Because you're doing both. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so that, 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 that's been a big question in the series, you know, what, what's the skillful way to work with integration, um, especially using these, you know, these accelerants. Yeah. And I think for people, you know, that is a huge question as I integrated from my one year experience, it took me two years to integrate that. And I was so, I, I don't think I understood what it really takes to integrate those huge ones. And it reminds me a lot of um, Jack Kornfield's book, um, his book, After the Ecstasy, The Laundry, you know, where it's all these like integration, you know, hell stories of, you know, descending being so high on the mountain or in the cosmos. And then you come home and, oh my God, I've got this to do. (laughs) It's hard. You know, it's really, really hard. And I, I just, right now, I just tell people the truth of it. You know, most people, when they go on retreats, they're fleeing their lives in some way, right? They're, mm. they're saying, there's a problem. I got to get out of here. And they come meet me where we are. And they have this very profound, life-changing experience. And then they go home and the mess is there. And they go, oh, no, wait, I, you know, there's dishes, I, my job I don't want, I have a bad relationship, and now they have to sort that. So it's like they sorted out the mind, but now you have to sort out the worldly side, which um, for a lot of people can be very, very challenging to, you know, it feels like they've gone down, right? Because they have to sort of deal with the mess and what those what it brings up to deal with it, you know, our bad relationship or something that's dysfunctional and we need to change or decisions that we had made and weren't good, but, you know, now we have to face them, you know, so you come down off the mountain and there it is. And you have to kind of have the, the capacity to sort it out um, because you're kind of looking at it now from a different perspective and that's hard. There's like a gap there. You know, you, you have this new mind, but your life doesn't reflect it yet. Right. You gotta, you have to like kind of get all of that into order and, um, it can lead. And when you're getting that stuff into order, of course, what happens is more unconscious material comes out, right. Cause you have to make decisions and that can produce feelings. So I know from myself integrating for me is a holistic approach. It's almost like, what is going to help me live at this level? What do I need to do? And I remember when I did a whole year of shamanic work nonstop, I came home and then I fell in love with someone and it didn't work out. And that relationship brought out so many unresolved things. And I went back and I started meeting with a therapist intensively again. And I met with her for about I don't know, six months or so. And she helped me integrate a whole bunch. I did a bunch of body work that helped me integrate. And of course, continuing with the meditation and the different practices. And so I think the thing is that we have to be really open to any of these healing modalities may be what is needed at any one time. It could be therapy. It could be family constellation work. It can be deeper avenues or understandings about, you know, trauma. It could be work around sacred sexuality. So the, the psychedelic experience isn't the end all. It's often the beginning of something. And I often, I tell people that I hope this could be, you know, yes, ending one thing, but just know something else is opening. Okay. This isn't the end of the road. 
this is the beginning of, you know, your journey. This is the beginning of something that you have to kind of step into. So the integration process for me is a little bit easier because I have people on my retreats that have a spiritual background already. So turning to mindfulness, yoga, eating well, you know, all of these things are already kind of doing. So that's helpful on one level. But ultimately, the integration, that's the real work. Living it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's where it's hard. <laughs> it's easy to, in some ways, it's easy to sit on a retreat in silence. It's not easy. Oh, it's hard. It's a yes. different kind of hard. But try going home in your messy life, you know, and paying attention. We know that that's way harder on some level, you know? Yes. <laughs> yes. I, I've I've really enjoyed the what I see as like kind of the turn of perspective of uh, Dharma teachers over the last you know few decades, where it seems like the emphasis is becoming more imminent. It is becoming more about you know these things are useful insofar as they they do uh, uh, support us in living more fully in, in our lives as they are. Um, as opposed to the, you know, maybe the monastic heritage um, of Buddhism, especially Theravada Buddhism, where, you know, there really was an idea of leaving home and, um, and, and setting up a new kind of spiritual home that was distinct and in some ways, um, in some ways separate from, from conventional life. Um, I've really enjoyed seeing, seeing us grapple with that as we try to, you know, figure out how does a renunciative of tradition integrate with a you know, more kind of imminent justice focused and, you know, care and, you know, compassion. Well, compassion, of course, is there, but it's, you know, it looks different with a two-year-old as I'm finding than it does, you know, um, on a meditation. I agree like, how can you. I just not murder? How can I just not murder this little person? <laughs> you know, that's like my, right. if I can do that, I'm demonstrating tremendous compassion. Right. And that's real. That's like you're developing those paramis. And I know, I think there's this like beautiful evolution around even Buddhism, about what it means to the Western mind. And I, I'm with you. When I was younger, I had Joseph Goldstein as my teacher and I had Jack Cornfield as my teacher. And Jack and Joseph was my meditation teacher and Jack was my teacher teacher, right? So I would always, Joseph would say, it's about the mountain, go up to the mountain, stay on the mountain, never come down off the mountain. And then Jack would say, no, it's all about the village, stay in the village, you know, be in the mm -hmm. village and the village is where you, you're going to work it all out, get married, get, have children, get in the, you know, watch your mind. And so I, I always used to go back and forth, which one is it? Is it the village? Is it the mountain? And now I see it's both. You know, mm. there's time to be away and then there's time to be right in the middle of your life, right? There's time to be right in the middle of things and the escape, trying to get away from either one. So it feels like sort of a false narrative now. Thank you. Yeah. We're evolving on this. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. Yes. And, you know, if, if evolution is a response of organisms to our changing environment, <laughs> we yeah. certainly are evolving. Yeah, and more feminine too. Like it's not about like this escaping the world is also like part of like some type of disembodiment, you know, getting out of here is, I don't know if that never felt like the wise view, but I can understand the feeling of getting me out of here. Yes. 
Yeah. And and I can understand the I can understand the healthy drive of transcendence of yes. you know, that feeling of really wanting to propel into something new and have a, a new understanding. But yeah, if it's like getting out of or excluding what came before that that seems uh too far. I'm with you on that. Mm. Um as one of my early mentors, Ken Wilber said, transcend and include. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. And I think that's much more of the I think what resonates so much with the Tibetan view. You know, it's kind of like, you know, the idea of one taste or, you know, it's everything, yes. you know, this I always really resonated with that, but I didn't know how to live in that place. Like, wow, include everything, you know. And it's getting easier moment by moment. You know, it's like, okay, yes, this is part of it. This isn't a mistake. And um, I've learned a lot of that and definitely in ceremonies. Hmm. So is there anything else that you would want to share with a group of people who may identify as Buddhist geeks? (laughs) Some of us. Yeah, well, I definitely am a geek for sure. And... I guess, you know, at the end of the day is for us all to remember how much power our practices have, you know, that one heart and mind transformed can do a lot of good. And sometimes we, we don't always remember how much power we have. You know, we might feel like we're just doing our practice alone, geeking out somewhere. Oh, this doesn't really matter, but it does, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a collective wisdom rising and like everything rising, Buddhism is also rising mindfulness, awareness, you know, the offshoots, even secularizing it as aspects of Dharma presence, you know, all of these things. So I guess I would just remind everyone of how much power they do have by, by taking care of your mind, you take care of all of us. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.